This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Most people don't take medications for one of their side effects, but a group of diabetes medications has become an exception to this. Drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi are making headlines not for their ability to treat diabetes, but for the weight loss that comes with taking them. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? That's comedian Jimmy Kimmel, host of this year's Oscars. But the use of these medications isn't a joke, especially for patients who need them and can't get them. I'm a diabetic. I'm 65 years old. It's impossible to get the medication because now that people want to line up and and do weight loss on diabetes medication, diabetics have to scramble to see if they can save themselves. I'm in the midst of trying to reverse my diabetes through diet, exercise, and lifestyle. It's the only way I can save myself with certainty and not have to beg and plead for the medication that could save my life. Scott, thanks for that message. Companies are taking note of the high demand for these medications for weight loss. Last week, Weight Watchers announced it will acquire a telehealth operator called Sequence to prescribe these drugs. But a rise in demand for these medications has led to shortages. And then there's the cost. Without insurance, they can run more than $1,000 a month. Should a potentially life-saving medication be available to those whose lives aren't at risk? And if this medication can help doctors address America's obesity epidemic, why is the healthcare system failing to support the cost of it? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after this short break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation by introducing our guests. Joining us is Dr. Disha Narang. She's an endocrinologist and obesity medicine specialist at Northwestern Medicine. Dr. Narang, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And also with us is Dr. Caroline Apovian. She's a doctor in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Hypertension at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also co-director of the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at the hospital. Dr. Apovian, it's great to have you. 
It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we mentioned two medications, Ozempic and Wagovi. Dr. Narang, there are several others too, but how do these medications work? Yeah, so these are in the category of uh, drugs called GLP-1 agonists. And so the way that we use these, of course, uh, we've been uh, using these for a bit over a decade now in the world of diabetes. They work to really help regulate blood sugar control. They also work at the level of the stomach or the gut, and it slows down gastric emptying. So it makes people feel fuller faster. And then the, the last is that it works at the level of the brain, at the appetite center. So it actually does help to suppress our fullness hormones or I'm sorry, let me let me switch that. It helps to suppress our hunger hormone and it helps to increase our fullness hormone. And so with all of those together, we have, you know, of, of course, really great blood sugar control, but also weight loss. Wagovi was approved for weight loss by the FDA in 2021. Dr. Apovian, is it just that you take the medication and you suddenly lose weight or are there other factors that are involved? As uh, Dr. Uh, Disha Narang mentioned, these are GLP-1 agonists that that are normally made by our stomach when we eat. So we're just giving you a little bit more of it. And as Dr. Narang mentioned, they work in the gut by delaying uh, stomach, the, the food going through the stomach. So it makes you feel full but it also makes you feel full in the brain because it hooks onto the receptor that causes satiety. That's how these drugs work. So you're gonna lose weight gradually, about one to two pounds of of weight per week, along with a diet and exercise program, very important. But it doesn't suddenly help you lose weight. It's a gradual process. You're gonna feel full with less food. So this is, you know, uh, um, what was mentioned earlier in the program is that that people are taking this because of the side effect. This is not a side effect. Weight loss is the way this medication works to get rid of diabetes, put it into remission, and to help people with obesity lose weight. It's life-saving for both conditions, for diabetes and for obesity. Obesity causes type 2 diabetes. But when we talk about the way this is being presented right now um, in in popular culture, is there a distinction, Dr. Narang, between a medication being approved for weight loss and a medication being approved to treat obesity? So, I think there is, there needs to be a difference. And so, you know, when we talk about obesity, we talk about a chronic disease, right? People, for for example, someone in their 50s, they may have been dealing with this for most of their lives for maybe the last 20, 30, 40 years. And so the way that I think um, this is taking off in terms of social media, uh, you know, all these TikTok videos and that sort of thing, it's being seen as a bit of a magic wand to have a quick result. And, you know, we're kind of in this culture where we want fast and quick results. We want something to happen easily. And unfortunately, in the setting of a chronic disease like this, this is a long-term therapy that we need to uh, look at. And so when we talk about weight loss and obesity, yes, they go together, but the but the mind shift needs to occur that this is a long-term therapy. So if we stop the medication 
our weight goes up. Just like if we stop medication for blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes, our blood sugars, blood pressure and cholesterol also go up. And so this is not intended for use of, you know, a medication for three or four weeks to get ready for an event, for example. This is a long term therapy. And, and that's the, the change that needs to occur in some of the language being used around this. Well, and how does FDA approval for a specific use like weight loss affect how the drugs are prescribed, Dr. Narang? So, so you know, if, it, if for weight management, if Wigovi is prescribed, it really just depends on whether or not the insurance will cover it. A lot of the, the one of the greatest rate limiting steps that we have in weight management is actually getting appropriate coverage for these medications, which are actually quite safe and can have a lot of long term benefits. These have been game changing in the world of weight management. However, what we're seeing, especially what's leading to the shortage, is that a lot of these medications are being inappropriately prescribed. So Ozempic, for example, is only approved for type two diabetes use. Wigovi, which is also semaglutide, these are the exact same medications, but one is approved for diabetes and one is approved for weight. And, and depending on what you're prescribing towards, that's where insurance coverage comes in. We're getting a lot more you know, potentially inappropriate uh, uh, prescriptions for Ozempic for weight management. And this is exactly what's led to this downstream effect of drug shortages, uh, even within the other categories of GLP-1 agonists. So this is exactly why our patients with diabetes are not able to get their medications on a regular basis at this time. Well, Dr. Apovian, why would doctors prescribe this medication inappropriately? Why Are there not controls around how that happens? Yeah, it's not that doctors are prescribing inappropriately. It is that, first of all, the FDA approves drugs for obesity. It is a chronic disease, just like diabetes and hypertension. You are, appro- you are appropriate for a obesity, anti-obesity agent. We have to get away from calling these weight loss drugs. That's why the that's why pay, people out there think they're they're just for ten pound weight loss. It's an anti obesity agent. Okay, you're appropriate for these for these drugs if your BMI is over thirty, which is class one obesity, or over twenty seven, which is still overweight with a serious condition. That's if you have a patient and you prescribe for one of these two conditions, BMI over 30 or over 27, you are helping that patient, yes, lose weight, but also decrease their risk of developing diabetes, of of, uh, needing to go on insulin, of being on antihypertensive, and you're decreasing their risk of mortality from heart disease. So perhaps I I misheard Dr. Narang, but Dr. Narang, I I thought I heard you say that some doctors are prescribing this inappropriately. You know, I... It's been both, right? Certainly someone with a, a BMI above 27 with a comorbidity and BMI above 30, they're certainly eligible for weight management medications. What I am seeing is patients who potentially do not meet that criteria are still getting ready access to these medications. And, and so that's exactly where, you know, I think the power of social media has really affected the prescribing of, of these agents. And I'm not sure if Dr. Apovian has had the same um, experience, but I've definitely seen folks that don't necessarily meet those guidelines getting the medications more and more readily. 
That's a really good point, Dr. Narang. I think that you might be referring to these uh, shops that have come up uh, mm-hmm. advertising, you know, um, we have semaglutide with exactly. B12. Get your injection exactly. today. All right? Those are not the doctors that are obesity medicine specialists who are primary care providers who care about the health of their patients. These are people out there making money inappropriately. Let's go back to our inbox for a moment. We got this message from one of you. I was recently diagnosed with diabetes and placed on a product called Mounjaro. I have lost a considerable amount of weight on Mounjaro, but in January, they ran out of Mounjaro, so I had to switch over to Ozempic. And as of this date, I still cannot get Mounjaro from my uh, Express Pharmacy. And it's very frustrating because I actually liked Mounjaro better than Ozempic. So it's still a problem. Dr. Narang, what happens when someone with diabetes stops taking their medication or has to switch medications? Yeah, you know, this has been our experience for most of the last year because of these shortages. And so we've switched back and forth. You know, we're trying our best to get our patients their medications. uh, And, you know, we've certainly been a part of this shortage and through this experience with our patients. And so this is a very, very common um, um, situation with our our patients. You know, we don't have Manjaro available, so we're having to switch over to Ozempic or one of the other GLP-1 agonists. You know, we're, we're sort of at the mercy of the current supply chain, unfortunately. And, you know, what has happened is that actually this is this is almost a lucky situation where she was able to switch from Manjaro to Ozempic because we've had patients who have gone without their medications for some months and that has resulted in increase in blood sugars, you know, increases in needs of their insulin or other medications. The nice thing about GLP-1 agonists has been that it really has decreased the amount of insulin one needs to take because of the weight loss it has offered. It has also decreased the needs of other medications like their blood pressure medication or cholesterol medication. Now, with not being able to get the medication, we're sort of backtracking a little bit and scrambling a bit. And so, you know, right now, our objective is just to make sure that our patients get a medication in that category of drugs that will help them. Um, our hope is that the supply chain gets back up to speed where we can, you know, prescribe more freely in terms of, you know, what, you know, this patient may be a better candidate for Manjaro, this one might be a better candidate for Ozempic. And that's our hope, but we're currently not in that situation. Well, I want to bring another guest into the conversation. Samita Makupadier is a writer and former executive editor at Teen Vogue. She's also the author of an essay in The Cut magazine called Manjaro and Me about her experience with anti-obesity medication. Samita, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Samita, when your doctor first suggested you go on medication for your weight, you were against it. Why? I have always been skeptical of weight loss medication. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s with the Fen-Fen scare, um, with concerns around Dexatrim and what some of the side effects could be. Um, And then I think I had fundamentally internalized this idea that weight 
is a direct result of your self-control and your ability to commit yourself to a workout program or to eat better. Um, you know, and, and these narratives are kind of floating all around us that, you know, you have to make lifestyle changes to kind of avoid some of these lifestyle diseases. And so I did see it as kind of a sign of failure that I had kind of failed in some way. I had gotten to the point where I had you know, gained enough weight that it was impacting my health and that I would have to turn to an in injectable drug. Um, something about that sounded very scary um, because I wasn't educated on what these drugs actually do. And how did your view of the medication change once you were on it? Once I realized um, that it was not about self-control. I think, you know, as both of the doctors have so beautifully talked about, um, this is a drug that helps you with feelings of fullness. And one of the things I was struggling with is that I have a stress-related compulsive eating disorder and I struggle with knowing when to stop eating. And that was having impacts on my health. And what this does is it creates an intervention so that there's a part of my, the part of my brain that, you know, somebody who has perhaps a more neutral relationship to food is able to know and have an internal clock of when they should stop eating. Since I didn't have that, having it all of a sudden made me realize that I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to have this kind of internal mechanism to be able to stop myself when it wasn't really internal. It was hormonal and it was in my brain. There, there, there was a, it, was a, it was a chemical issue. And I think similar to how we look at psychiatric medication, this, is, this felt like an intervention on that level where it was a tool that was going to help me control my urges and some of the food choices that I was making. And the ease with which I was able to transition into kind of craving healthier food and wanting to eat healthier food or being really aware of how smaller amounts of food were making me feel full allowed me the space and the kind of breathing room to be like, okay, I actually don't want to eat half of that cake. I want to eat a bite of that cake because if I eat more of it, I will feel sick. And, you know, previously I had kind of ignored that signal, but this makes it really front and center. Sam Hita, what were the specific medical concerns you had as you were going on this drug? So I ha was pre-diabetic. Um, I, you know, am kind of medically classified as obese, and my blood pre uh, my blood pressure was normal, but my cholesterol was also going up. And both of my parents also have heart disease. My father actually passed away from diabetes-related complications. Um, so I was very anxious knowing that my genetic makeup kind of already predisposed me to many of these diseases. Um, and so when I had gone to the doctor, I said I was open to a more radical intervention because I realized that I was on, like, you know, I kind of felt like a ticking time bomb, as I write in the essay. Um, you know, and so I, I kind of knew I needed something a little bit more, I needed a more aggressive intervention. I just wasn't sure what it would be. Um, so yeah. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Lisa. I am a diabetes nurse and um, I'm just responding to the question about the Ozempic and the, and the medications that are for diabetes, but people are taking them for weight loss and there's a shortage. And I deal with this every day. My patients will start on one of these medications when they get to the higher doses. Nobody has them. None of the pharmacies are getting them. It's terrible that people that don't have diabetes are getting them. They, they shouldn't be. Dr. Narang, you, you sort of alluded to a breakdown somewhere in the system that's leading to what we just heard there from Lisa. Where is that breakdown happening? 
breakdown in terms of the supply chain. If mm-hmm. I, yeah. is, that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah e- exactly. I think this goes back to the unprecedented demand for the medication, right? And, and I think that social media has been a very large part of that in the last year or so that has led to the shortage. And so lots of requests from everybody across the board, whether or not they meet uh, uh, criteria or guidelines for the medication. And so you know, we've been using these medications for years from the endocrine and weight management world. We've been treating our patients uh, for years. We know the benefits, but I think because, you know, there has been so much publicity around it, there has been um, so much demand. This is exactly what's leading to the shortage. And, and you know, I, I understand, you know, our sicker patients are certainly our patients that are struggling with diabetes. However, I think that, you know, once the supply chain does come up, there is absolutely um, a case to be had about treatment, long-term treatment for patients who struggle with obesity. This is the ticket to preventive illness or preventive care, right? If we treat this, we, we help to prevent all these other issues that arise from obesity. So both are deserving, uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, we need to right now be very careful about who we're prescribing it to because our sickest patients aren't readily getting their medication. Let's head back to our inbox. My 17-year-old daughter is diabetic and has been on Ozempic for over two years to really good effect. But as of January 1st, insurance decided to quit covering it under their formulary. So now we're faced with lots of appeals to try to get it covered and paying $1,100 a month out of pocket until we get it resolved. I think their decision was driven by the increased demand for it because of weight loss use. And I think that's really, really unfair. This medication can cost as much as $1,300 a month for Wagovi and $900 a month for Ozempec. Dr. Apovian, why are these drugs so expensive? Yes, that's a very good question. So the company, the companies have made these drugs uh, and they're, they're not off patent yet. They're certainly, you know, once uh, a, an older obesity medis- medication, Sexenda, goes off patent, we may be able to have better access for GLP-1s for our patients, but they are very expensive, and it's kind of like a catch-22. 45% of Americans have obesity. 14% already have type 2 diabetes. These patients who already have obesity are going to develop diabetes. If we put, if we're able to put all of our patients who are eligible for obesity agents on a GLP-1, the price would go down. But it's a catch-22. The insurance insurance aren't covering it because they're expensive. So we can't get patients on these drugs. So something's got to give, i.e., what has to give? Somebody has to decide they're going to pay up front for long-term health benefits 10 and 20 years down the line. What are the health benefits? We're going to reduce the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in this country because we're, we're going to reduce the prevalence of obesity. But Sam up Hita, front, yes, it's going to cost. Sam Hita, does your insurance cover the costs of your medication? Um, I believe it does, yeah. 
We got this email from Hanan who says, I'm overweight and try to lose weight with little luck, but now I have been diagnosed as pre-diabetic. Both my primary care doctor and my endocrinologist recommend Ozempic or Wagovi, but Cigna Medical Insurance rejected to authorize and provide these medications, citing that I am not diabetic. I have to reach the point of becoming diabetic with all its risks to get the medicine. We'll be back with more of our discussion after this quick break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. Now let's turn back to our discussion about diabetes and obesity medication and who gets access to it. Just before the break, we heard from one listener who said their health insurance company didn't approve the medication for them. Dr. Narang, Medicaid and Medicare don't cover obesity medication. Why not? Yeah, you got me. You know, this is something that uh, unfortunately, uh, like I said earlier, has been a great rate limiting step. And, you know, our, our population who does use Medicaid is also one of the populations that struggles most with diabetes and the most with obesity. And so we do have coverage for GLP-1 agonists for our patients on Medicaid that have type 2 diabetes and Medicare. But yes, for now, we do not have coverage of GLP-1 agonists for weight management for those two populations. And it is a it, it is a great barrier for us. Let's go back to our inbox for a moment. We got this message from one of you. My brother struggled with severe bulimia for 25 years. When it messed up his blood sugar, he was prescribed one of these meds. It was a miracle. He no longer obsesses about food. With a clinician's careful care, maybe this can finally be a relief for people who live in the nightmare of eating disorders, like it was for my brother. Samhita, you say the medication doesn't manage your weight, but it manages your appetite. What's the difference between the two for you? So, you know, one is obviously related to the other. Um, I, you know, have struggled to manage how much I eat, how much I actually need to eat, getting proper nutrition. And what the drug has done has been an intervention to controlling my appetite, which is then leading to weight loss. And I want to say that it's not a massive amount of weight loss. And I believe Dr. Narang said this. It is, you know, it is the combination of, you know, eating less food, eating food that has higher nutritional value, and also making small lifestyle changes that have led to a consistent amount of weight loss. But in, you know, about seven months, I've lost about 25 to 30 pounds. So it's not a massive amount of weight loss or how a lot of the breathless reporting, I think, makes it sound like you'll start taking this and you'll just drop 100 pounds. It doesn't really work like that. It really does work as something to stabilize your appetite. And then on top of that, you can use other tools to kind of get healthier. I want to go back to her voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Kathleen in Virginia. I have type 2 diabetes and my endocrinologist prescribed Ozempic for me. I was on Ozempic for a little over a year, 
And during that time, I experienced nauseousness, et cetera, but never did my endocrinologist test my blood to ensure that my levels were good. As a result, one of the side effects of using Ozempic is pancreatitis. I landed in the hospital last fall with severe case of pancreatitis as a direct result of taking Ozempic. We also got this email from Michael who says, I've been prescribed Ozempic, but have not started due to fears of side effects. Can you discuss that with your guests? Dr. Apovian, these are conversations you have to have with your patients. What are some of the potential side effects of Ozempic? These are very good questions, and I'm terribly sorry about the case of pancreatitis that patient had. It's very, very rare. We do have to apprise our patients of the potential side effects. What some of the side effects that we discuss, we discuss all of them, but the most common are going to be nausea and if it's, if, it's, if it's unchecked, vomiting. And that is why these drugs are meant to be dosed slowly and, and at low doses to start. So Ozempic is started at 0.25 once a week for four weeks. And if there's no nausea, then you go up the next month to 0.5 the third month to one, and that's where you typically stay. You can also go up to two. Wagovi has a similar ramp up as well, and it's all to prevent and appease the nausea that is part of the mechanism of action of the drug. It's just like being, you know, the naturally occurring hormone in your body, GLP-1, makes you feel full, and when you eat too much, you get a little nausea, that is the, the natural side effect of this medication. Other, other uh, co- more common side effects are constipation. You'd have to keep regular with a high-fiber diet and fatigue. Pancreatitis is very, very rare. Now, pancreatitis can occur if you lose weight too quickly and you end up with cholestitis or gallstones, which can get infected, then you can also get what's called gallstone pancreatitis. But pancreatitis on its own is one of the rare, rare side effects. And when the, you say rare, can you, can you give some numbers around that just for context? Um, very, uh, you know, maybe point. 05 to 1%. It's really rare. The most common side effects, nausea, maybe 10 to 20% of patients will experience some level of nausea, maybe higher than that. Uh, vomiting, a little bit less because we don't normally start the drug at a high enough dose to get not vomiting. If you start Ozempic or Wagovi at 1 or 1.7 or even the highest dose, you will certainly develop vomiting. Dr. Narang, anything to add? No, I think um, um, Dr. Povian said it uh, just right. You know, one of the things that we have to consider with medication is benefit versus risk. And so we have to have these conversations with our patients that, you know, these are all the benefits that can occur from this medication. These are the risks. And then you make a decision together. Uh, As she mentioned, you know, pancreatitis is extremely rare from uh, taking a GLP-1 agonist. However, you know, any any medication can have its negative side effects. Acetaminophen or Tylenol can, too much of it can cause liver failure, you know. And so we have to have these discussions with patients so that they're understanding standing of, you know, I might not feel great on this medication. There's a rare side effect of this. The the flip side is that, okay, well, I might get my diabetes under control. I might lose weight. And then, you know, these other things may 
improve as well. So this is going to be an active discussion with um, everyone's individual physician. Well, and how much do we know at this point, Dr. Narang, about using these medications over a long period of time? Yeah, you know, we've had about a decade, a little over a decade of use of these medications. And so far, so good, you know. And and so obviously, yes, time will tell. uh, But right now, a decade in, we've had, um, you know, really, really great results. And, you know, people will talk about thyroid cancer and things like that. The one situation where we do not recommend taking this medication is if you have a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer. That's a very rare thyroid cancer as well. So even if you have low thyroid, hypothyroidism, papillary thyroid cancer history, you are still safe to take this medication. And so there's a lot of stuff online. People get very scared and overwhelmed, but please have these discussions with your doctors before making these decisions, you know, on your own. I want to share a few more stories we're hearing this hour. Rodney emails that diabetes medications are a game changer. The secondary effects of losing weight by increased urine output and slowing glucose production is great, but sugar intake, diet, and exercise will always be primary. They are not diet pills. And Lynn emails, I've struggled with obesity all my life. I'm now 65. I've tried every diet, every medication, had gastric bypass surgery. Then these new meds come along, and they work. I feel freed by their effects on my body, but I cannot get them through my insurance or Medicare. My insurance says it would cost $800 a month. This is an answer to the problem I have struggled with my whole life. I now have a son who at 27 shows the signs of the same struggle. It's wrong for this not to be covered. There was an article in The Economist earlier this month that said these medications could, quote, end obesity. Dr. Narain, what are your thoughts on that claim? It's certainly been a game changer. But as Samhita mentioned earlier, it is a resource. You know, we have enough patients that, you know, you might not be a non-responder. You might, you know, and so a lot of it, we, it goes hand in hand with what someone's doing day to day in addition to the medication. It is a resource to weight loss, just like surgery would be. And so it's there, we don't have a magic wand. It's, it's a great resource but it is absolutely not a magic wand. I, I'm also curious, though, about the larger discussion around diet culture and how we think about health overall, not just weight loss. Um, anytime we do these conversations, I mean, these are deeply personal issues. The messaging over our lifetimes have been so um, <laughs> problematic, I think, would, would put it mildly. And the ways in which people equate thinness with health in the midst of a, a food environment where we have access to heavily processed foods, people don't necessarily have access to safe recreational spaces, uh, we work more, <laughs> we sleep less, there are so many other factors along with genetics. Are, are you concerned that this becomes just another sort of quick fix, at least in the discourse around it? Dr. Narang, I'll come to you first. Right. Thank you. And this is exactly why me and Dr. Opovian are talking about this, right? This is not a quick fix. And I think as a culture, as an American culture, we are looking for those quick fixes because we like results. We want we want something quickly. But obesity is a chronic disease. We have to treat it as such. And, and this also, as you said, speaks to the greater issue of how are we going to attack our food environment with every corner in this country has a fast food restaurant. The marketing around processed foods is quite deceptive, actually, right? People don't know how to 
bring ingredients together. People don't, you know, people have a lot of questions about this. I see patients from all walks of life, those don't have, do who don't have insurance to those have, who have all the resources and insurance, um, you know, um, in, uh, uh, in the world. And they still have the same question in terms of how do I curate my dietary pattern to improve my chronic disease? But part of what I'm getting at, though, is also just the way we talk about this issue. Um, it's not surprising that if you've been told all of your life that there's something wrong with you. Uh, I know some people really even chafe at the, uh, the label of obesity being called a disease. So if, you move, if you're moving through the world and you're feeling the weight of that when someone presents an option to you that's going to quote-unquote fix it, that's very appealing. So it just seems like at a cultural level, there's something deeper we still need to address as a country that we, we haven't gotten to. Dr. Apovian, am I making sense to you? Absolutely, Jen. This is, you know, the, the world around us, the environment has changed. We now have highly processed sugar and fat in a package that is made to make you want to eat it. And guess what? We all are. And there's something that changes in our body, certainly if we have the genes to store more body fat, we do. And then the body defends a higher body weight. 45% of Americans now have obesity, the chronic disease. So here's what's going to happen. Hopefully in the spring, the SELECT trial, what's the SELECT trial? It's a long-term trial looking at semaglutide, which is Ozempic and Wagovi, for patients with obesity and heart disease, we hope that it's going to show a positive result. What's a positive result? It is going to, we hope it's going to show a decrease in mortality. That will hopefully alert the insurance companies that this, we are now talking about a life-saving drug that should be prescribed to up to 44% of Americans to prolong their life, to reduce their weight, and to prevent diabetes and heart disease. Samhita, what would you want someone who's considering these medications to know from your experience? It's really not about weight and obesity, and, and I'm kind of with you know, the critics of the constant categorization of obesity as an epidemic and as a disease. I understand medically why that's necessary, but I do think it's created a bit of shame around if you fit into any of these categories, um, you know, having difficulty actually advocating for yourself and knowing what you actually need. So my blood sugar was normal at a time when I would have medically still been considered obese. And weight alone is not a good enough measure of your overall health. There are a lot of other indicators. And I think because we live in a culture that is so fixated on weight and being thin, we sometimes miss these bigger cues. And one of the biggest you know, realizations for myself in taking this drug has been not to focus on the weight loss as much as I'm focusing on the actual numbers, on what my A1C is doing, on where my um, cholesterol is. Uh, and, you know, weight is one indicator, but it's actually not the full one. And and, and I think that is the, the message that I want people to know. And that's the learning that I kind of had to do and, and really a type of unlearning where I fundamentally believed that weight was my fault. I had caused this. I had, I deserved the bad health that I was struggling with. And then to learn that actually that's not true. There is a chemical component to this. This drug is an intervention. And when paired with other interventions, it is actually very helpful. 
That's Samhita Mukhopadhyay. She's a writer and former executive editor at Teen Vogue. She's also the author of an essay in The Cut magazine. It's called Moon Journal and Me. It's about her experience with anti-obesity medication. We also have been speaking with Dr. Disha Narang. She's an endocrinologist and obesity medicine specialist with emphasis on diabetes at Northwestern Medicine. And Dr. Caroline Apovian. She's a doctor in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Hypertension at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also co-director of the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at the hospital. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen Moyt. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.